0: I wanna ask you as we look at this third message in the Christ-centered life, to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter two. Toward the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter two, John wrote five letters. He wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, One of the most prolific writers in the New Testament gives us the greatest summary of the life of Christ, in the Gospel of John, then he writes these epistles years later. He writes the book of Revelation toward the end of his life, maybe in 90 AD, some three generations removed from the time of Christ. And so he has important words to say. I want you to imagine that the believers who had such respect for John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved— I want you to imagine when a letter showed up at the church from John. Wow, John has written us a letter. I wonder what he's got to say. Because they knew him, they loved him, he had been a vital voice in the development of the early church. Uh, he had just influenced in, in churches and The development of people and shown us the miracles of Christ and the I am sayings of Christ. He does that more than any of the other apostles in his writings. And when he gets to 1 John chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, what he's doing is he's saying, You need to live for Jesus because he's given us the because. And so I want you to pick up in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 12 because what John was, if I were titling this section, which I did, uh, I would say spirituality doesn't mean weird. Sometimes we have gotten the idea through the years that being spiritual means that you're just really weird. And that's not what the Bible teaches. 1 John chapter 2 in verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because Notice he'll do this six times. "'Your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. "'I'm writing to you, fathers, "'because you know him who has been from the beginning. "'I'm writing to you, young men, "'because you have overcome the evil one. "'I have written to you, children, "'because you know the Father. "'I have written to you, fathers, "'because you know him who has been from the beginning.'" I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He says, I'm writing, I have written. I said something in the past, I'm saying something in the present. He's giving us the guidelines for the family of God and how to be spiritually minded, to be full of Jesus, to be Christ-centered, and to not be weird. Those who know God obey his commands. They love others. They walk in the light. They walk in forgiveness. They maintain fellowship with God. And so look at who he's writing to. Children, fathers, and young men. The children are probably new believers who are still coming to an understanding of what all they have in Christ. That's why he goes through in chapter 1 and talks about if anyone says they have not sinned. He's talking to them about how to deal with sin on an ongoing basis in your life. Now he uses two different words. The children in verse 12, the little children, is a word that means the immature. Or those that are under a tutor or a teacher. They're still being taught. You could say these are the young Christians in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, our college ministry, or young Christians in our adult classes. These are people that are not way down the road. So he's writing to them as little children. And then in verse 13, he uses the word children. And there he's referring to all believers. That word children means born ones born once. We've been born into a family of God and our sins have been forgiven, but he wants to warn them of dangers of living in this world. Here's why. Nobody likes to see a Christian become a statistic. Nobody wants to look around and say, that person served God for six months, six years, 60 years, and then they blew it. They dropped the ball. They dropped the baton. And they didn't finish well. All of us, if you've been saved any amount of time, know people that have run well for a season, but then they get tripped up. And so this is not rote instruction that he's giving as much as the application of what the Christ life looks like. He writes to fathers, those that have been walking with Jesus for a while, those that have been on the road long enough to know better, Uh, Still one of my most memorable moments etched in my mind as if it was with a chisel is when I was sitting as a young man in my 30s and Vance Hebner was in his 80s and sitting in his living room and waxing eloquent and telling him all the great things I was doing and how God was blessing and just all the things I was learning and he was sitting in the rocking chair and I was sitting on the couch and he just reached over and put his hand on my arm and he said, son, I've been young and I've been old. You've just been young. Why don't you be quiet and listen for a while? One of the greatest life lessons I ever got in my life because I was trying to impress him with how much I knew and not drawing from him how much he knew and listening to him. You you know, I learned something that day. You never learn anything by talking. You learn by listening. So he's writing to the fathers that know that this world cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. We know the traps some of us have lived long enough, we, we know the traps, we know the temptations, we know what's going to happen when kids go to middle school and high school and college. We, we know what's out there, and we need them to listen, because we've been down the road. The young men are those who are in the midst of the battle. I mean, they are they're at the height of their emotional and, and physical growth, Maybe not so much their maturity, but they're growing and they're in the midst of a battle and the devil is trying to lure them away. And he says to them, if you don't want to be a statistic, abide in the Word. Stay in the Word. The Word is our offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. John warns us not to love the world. And sometimes, unfortunately... Uh, I was reading a, a book kind of on the history of Christianity this week, I was scanning some pages and and this author who wrote these words in like the 1870s said, unfortunately we have done strange things in the name of Jesus. Uh, we've told women that their hair needed to be worn a certain way or They didn't need to have makeup or they didn't need to have too much makeup or or we've become mystics or we think you get holy by crawling into a hole and and withdrawing from society. That's not what Jesus taught. Our life in Christ is not about what t-shirt you wear. Our life in Christ is about the Christ that is inside of you, coming forth in your eyes and in your face and in your lips and your hands and your feet so that when people see you, they say, well, that must be what Jesus would do if he was in this situation. That's what it's about. Too often, we've been afraid to let people learn. And so we've established legalistic rules and regulations. And, you know, I've I've said this since I was in youth ministry. You know, we've got the nasty nine and the filthy five and the dirty dozen and the unsexy six. I mean, we got we got all these things. All these things that we set up as barriers which keep somebody from learning to walk by faith. And when they need to be corrected, showing them how the Holy Spirit has given us direction. So we, we need to work on the heart because the work of the Holy Spirit is distinctive, it is not trivial. And one of the ways that shows up is our love for Christ shows up in a love for others. If I'm going to have a Christ-centered life, then I'm going to love other people. You say, well, you don't know the people I know. Well, I know some people you don't know. And uh, they're hard to love. They're the more difficult to love kind of people. They're the extra grace needed kind of people. Some of them you're going to spend Thanksgiving with. Look, I, I know your family's like my family. It's always got some rotten apples in all of them. Some of them you go gonna spend Christmas with and you're already having discussions. Why do we ever buy them anything for Christmas? They don't appreciate one thing. It, but the love of Christ shows love when it's not deserved. If the love of Christ was just when we deserved it, none of us would ever see it. The love of Christ is for the undeserved, and I, as Paul would say, am the chief of sinners. You see, the world often thinks we're weird because we've given the world a caricature of Christ, not a true picture of Christ. We've given them a caricature, some weird image of who Christ is. And, and I will say, just me personally, legalism and extremism in rules have done more damage to hurt the simplicity of the gospel than all the bars and the drug dealers I can think of. Because people can't see Jesus because they see Pharisees. And they, there, are, there are just some folks that just take themselves way too seriously. I mean, some, some people just need to lighten up. I mean, they just need to lighten up. I mean, they need to lighten up. I mean, something could be funny on TV and everybody in the house is laughing and they're sitting there like this. That really was funny. But I'm not going to let anybody know I thought it was funny. I mean, I've got a friend, and, and he, he has never laughed, never laughed at anybody's joke. Now, he tells some funny things, but I've never seen him laugh at another person's joke. Now, he's funny and quippy and sarcastic all the time. I mean, he can roll it out, but you say something funny, you just go, okay, yeah, great, all right. <laughs> See, some people think serving God means you have to have a sour disposition. Uh, I, I served that church. Um... Back in my early ministry, I I served a church with sour disposition. It surprises people. When I'm talking to pastors and I say, you know, Warren Wiersbe had a great sense of humor. And a preacher will say to me, but I read his commentaries and there's no humor in there. And I said, I can tell you why. Because Warren says I've got X amount of words. My commentaries are, are a certain number of pages, pretty consistent length in chapters and I don't have time in a commentary to waste it on humor. So I write a commentary, but it's not a joke book. But Warren had an incredible sense of humor. Vance Havner had an incredible sense of humor. Don Miller, the greatest man of prayer I ever knew, had an incredible sense of humor. Uh, Layman Strauss had an incredible sense of humor. Uh, Vance Havner had an incredible sense of humor. What they have in common? They were godly men who loved Jesus. But they didn't lose the joy of living. You see, the world looks for funny. Jesus looks like joy. There's a big difference between just being funny. And now we live in a world where you can't be funny unless you use profanity. And somehow there's a world out there that thinks only profanity is funny. That's not funny. That's a small mind that doesn't have a good vocabulary. I remember a pastor that I served under in a first uh, summer church, and a guy came in wanting some help, and the pastor said, "No." He was about my pastor was about six six. He's a big man. He'd served in the military, and, and this guy just started cussing him out. And the pastor, with all the love of Jesus that he could muster, grabbed this guy by the shirt and pulled him up to him and said, "Son." I was in the service. If I couldn't cuss any better than that, I'd quit. You'll get it in a minute. This first letter of John, we see practical Christianity. We know how we're saved. We find forgiveness. We know how to walk in the Christ-centered life. He talks to us in the gospel and in the epistles about surrender and sanctification, and joy, and peace. He tells us how the Christian life starts, and he tells us how it's sustained. So in chapter one, he's dealt with sin. If we say we have no sin, but if you sin, and if you sin, you have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father that will bring joy to us. We don't have to walk in the burden of our sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Chapter 2 is the practical applications of truth. It is the life of Christ in the believer. Now, I don't know if 2020 can be any weirder. Unless on Christmas Day the Easter bunny shows up. I Just honest to goodness, I mean, I just don't know... I mean, we, we've got storms and we've got COVID and we've got some people doing this and some people doing that and some people that never wash their hands and some people that their hands, now they have to wash their hands and then put three tons of hand cream on because their hands are dried out. I mean, we're obsessed with cleanliness. We're obsessed with germs like a hospital is obsessed with germs. That's not a bad thing for us to do, but we also should be as obsessed about what the sins do to our lives and to our hearts. The Christian life is not passive, it's active. And as believers, we need to understand that it, the Christian experience includes some things, but it excludes some things. We need to remember who we are. You need to remember who you are. You're a child of God. You're a child of the King. You need to act like a child of of the King, and you need to remember the alternatives if you forget. You lose your joy, you lose your peace, you lose your testimony, you you lose the the Spirit of God and the sensitivity to what God is doing in your life. So all of that is introduction. Y'all weren't planning on going anywhere, were you? I mean, all of that was introduction. Let me just give you the context. Of these verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, John deals with wrong attitudes, wrong attitudes. In verses 15 through 17, he deals with wrong affections, love not the world. He deals with wrong affections. In verses 18 and 19, He deals with wrong associates. Now, let's just take those three and let's go back. Just go back to when you were a kid. I don't know if your parents did this to you. My parents did this to me. I don't like your attitude. What do you mean you don't like my attitude? Right now, right now, right in this moment. I don't like your attitude. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to tell me anything. You're living in my house, under my roof, eating my food, driving the car that I bought with the allowance that I gave you. I don't like your attitude. And then as you got older and you got a little bit of freedom, it was this. I don't like the people you're spending time with. You ever hear that? I I don't like the people you're spending. They're fine. They're fine. Well, that's their mother's worried about you, and I'm worried about them. Well, oh, I forgot you and their mother are friends. And y'all talk on the phone a lot. When we were growing up, our parents were in that generation of maybe they had made some bad choices or they had seen people make bad choices, and when they said things to us like I don't like your attitude, and I don't like the people you're spending time with. They were not killjoys. They were trying to protect us from making bad decisions because you become like the people you spend time with. Now, it does not mean we do not spend time with lost people because you've got to spend time with lost people to win lost people to Christ. It just means you better be spending time to be salt and light, not spending time and watch it erode your witness and you compromise your witness because you want the people at the cool kid table or your boss or whoever to like you enough that they see compromise in you that they're comfortable with. See, when black and white become dingy gray, the world feels more popular. And we got way too much dingy gray going on to have Christ-centered lives. Six times in verses 12 through 14, I am writing or have written because... A college philosophy teacher had a final exam and had one question at the top of the exam. The question was, why? Only one student in the whole class got the answer right. They wrote the word, because. Why? Because, that's what John is doing in this letter. I've written you, why'd you write us? Because, because he anticipates the question why can't I live like I want to? Why can't I sustain my Christian faith? What do I do if I keep on sinning? He's answering those questions. Because Christ has changed your life, this is what you're supposed to do. So I'm finally at the first point. 1 John 2, 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, To you and for his name's sake. The forgiven means to send away. The Greek is a picture of releasing water through irrigation canals. So here's what John is saying. When you get dry spiritually, when you feel like you're in a deserted experience, in a desert experience, in a wilderness experience, go to God and walk in his forgiveness. And watch his living water begin to flow through you by the Holy Spirit. And how do you do that? You go upstream and you see where the water flow got stopped. You go backwards and say, now when did this start to happen in my life? And you go back and find the breaking point and go back there and ask for forgiveness. Then you get back on the road. Isaiah 43, 25 I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. Isaiah says, for his name's sake, my own name's sake. Why does he forgive sin? Not because you're a great person. It's because of who he is. It's because of his name's sake, his name, his character. Forgiveness is all based on the person of Jesus. Forgiveness is not based on how good I am Forgiveness is based on how great God is, that He chooses to forgive, and it's given to little children. You come to Jesus like a child for forgiveness. You live and sustain your life like a child for forgiveness. You see, we may be on different levels of maturity, but we all came in on the same level of redemption. It doesn't matter whether you get saved when you're 5 or 50. You come in the same way. You come in the same way. We're all at the same level. We all have to humble ourselves. We have to repent. We have to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We have to ask him for forgiveness. We have to surrender our lives to him and change the direction of our lives. That's the, All of us do that the same way. Well, I'm 50 years old, and I've got college degrees. You still have to get saved the same way. You have to come as a child. Vance Havner said, if you want to talk about a worldly Christian, you might as well talk about a heavenly devil. Many Christians are still in the spiritual wilderness, longing for garlic instead of grace, Melons instead of manna. Second point, the Christ-centered Christian knows the Father through the Son, verse 13. This is a no-so salvation, that Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. This is a no-so salvation. I know whom I have believed. I know. I don't doubt. I don't hope. I'm not just rolling the dice here. I know who I've put my trust in for my salvation. But I also know that I trip up. I also know that I mess up. I also know that I say things and I do things that I shouldn't say and I shouldn't do, and I need to daily depend on God and daily walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit And because verse 18 tells us that the Antichrist is coming. Antichrist is the spirit that denies deity, The sovereignty and the lordship of Christ. The Christ-centered life says what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And Jesus told us and the disciples warned us from the book of Acts onward that there would be wolves that would come in to devour. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. Nobody gets a pass. If they don't like what you say, if you're saying my words, they're not going to like what you're saying. There's going to be persecution that comes. All of his demands that he makes on my life are empowered by the Spirit. It's not me trying harder; it's by me surrendering more and trusting Him. Now, just think about it for a minute. Isaiah chapter six—you don't have to turn there—but in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord. And he said, I was a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet. This is the man who proclaims the coming birth and suffering of a Savior to be born hundreds of years later. I, I mean, this is no small guy, this is no lightweight believer. Isaiah is one of the major prophets because of how much that he wrote. And here's what he says in Isaiah 6. He saw the Lord, he saw himself, and he saw the need of others. If I want to be Christ-centered, I need to see the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year when the rug got pulled out from under me, I saw the Lord. In the year of COVID, I saw the Lord. In the year of a bad diagnosis, I saw the Lord. Isaiah is saying, something happens in your life, the first thing you need to look for is the Lord. Then he said, I saw myself. I am a man of unclean lips. And he saw others. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He didn't give himself a pass. He saw the King of Kings. And whether we are children, fathers, or young men, we need to live like we know the Father. We need to live like we know the Father. It doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. You need to live like you know the Father. Like you know you're gonna come home and find out. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but I knew this when I went to school. This This is when We had some form of discipline. Now don't send me an email about this because if you do, I'm not gonna read it. This is when, if you got a spanking at school, you got one when you got home too. And you know, none of you are the worse off for it. I'm not talking about abuse, I'm talking about discipline. I I mean, I've told you this several years ago when we cleaned out my parents' house I found the Board of Education. My dad had made it. It had a handle on it. It was wood that thick. I wrote on it. Ouch. Ooh. Zowie. I mean, I've got all kind of writing on it. And, and if it wasn't that, this was my mom. Go in the yard to the switch tree and get a switch, and I'd go get the smallest one I could get. And she'd say, that's not big enough. You want me to go get that switch, or you want to go get it? I'll go get it. And then she'd make me sit there and pick the leaves off of it. I mean, I was, I was praying and I wasn't even saved. Because I knew what was coming. You see, we need to live like we're going to answer to the Father one day. That the Father knows and we're going to answer to Him one day. We are His children and we want to please the Father. The parable of the prodigal son is really not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the loving father who loved his son. The son went off into the pig pen. Luke 15 tells us a lot more about God than it tells us about the prodigal. You, You don't need the Bible to tell you what a prodigal looks like and how a prodigal squanders their life and how a prodigal will squander their inheritance. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. There are examples of that all over the place. But what you and I need is to know that the Father's always waiting. That's what we need. What we need to understand is that everything this young man wanted, everything he needed, he already had in the Father's house. Can I tell you something? Everything you want and everything you really need is in the Father's house. He withholds no good thing from those who love him. If you, being evil, will give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask? All you need is in the Father's house. Finally, Christ-centered Christians are overcomers. Verse 14. Chapter 2 and verse 14, they overcome the evil one. Ah, I'm over time, too. <laughs> overcome is an accomplished fact. It's a settled, continued experience. He's writing to young men who are dealing with the battles of life, and he's saying you can overcome. You don't have to be a 15-year-old or 16-year-old or 18-year-old or a college freshman and mess up. You can overcome. It doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. It Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But you can overcome. I think John is writing here to the next generation because by this time, you're at at least three generations removed from Christ. Most of the people that had seen Christ alive and most of the people that had seen the apostles alive were dead. John lived the longest. And this is kind of like Moses to Joshua to the book of Judges. This is transition and Moses to Joshua to the book of Judges. Here's Moses, here's Joshua, be strong and courageous, and then uh, you get to Judges. And there rose a generation that did not know God. What John is trying to help us avoid is the fall-off, which is typical between the first generation of people who come to Christ and their grandchildren. That's really what he's writing about live in such a way teach in such a way impact in such a way that your children are not less committed than you and your grandchildren are not committed at all show the love of god in such a way that the fire still burns i mean when i when i talked to warren wearsby and and when i talked to to tom Elliott, i mean they're in like four or five generations of preachers that have come out of their family. You know why? Because they have prayed, their great-great-grandparents prayed that in every generation there would be a preacher. And God has answered that prayer from people that have been dead over 100 years. God has answered that prayer. Don't take for granted what your spiritual ancestors rejoiced in. He wants to protect us from the evil one. That Greek word is paneros, it's the word, the root word from where we get our word pornography. What he's saying is, is that the evil one is not content to spend eternity in hell by himself or just with his fallen angels. He is working this world system to take as many people with him into hell as he can. And let me just give you a witnessing tool here. Somebody says, well, I'm just going to tell you something. I don't want to go to church. I don't like to be in church. This world has so much to offer. Listen, this world ultimately ends up with people being influenced and controlled, if not possessed, by the demonic. And the demon-possessed man that came at Jesus, and and Jesus was going to cast the demons out in the Gospel of Mark, and... They said, cast, no, don't, no, just cast us into the pigs. You know what demons' second choice is? Pigs. I'm just living my life. I'm living the high life. I'm living like I want to live. Well, the next option for the devil is a pig. And the only thing a pig is good for is Bacon. crispy crunchy not like mmm, mm, mm. that's not bacon that's raw meat mmm. it has got to. if it can't stand up in a cup it's 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 not God's bacon God said we could eat pork to the glory of God and I do I eat pork to the glory of God but if I'm gonna eat bacon I go to a restaurant, and I say, I want my bacon burned. And what they, that means to them is this. I said, no, it means like this. you got to stand up. If it can't stand up, nuke it in the microwave. Fry it, then nuke it. By the way, it takes all the grease out of it. So, Look at what he says. You are strong. The Word of God abides in you. You're not looking for loopholes. You're strong. The secret of the Christian life is abiding. God promises this permanent victory, this possibility of continued to overcome. The answer to every why should I is right here, because. So let me give you three simple keys to live the Christ-centered life, and then we're going to have an invitation. Number one, surrender to self. These are all in John chapter 15, which we studied a few years ago going through the gospel of John. Surrender of self. It's the vine and the branch. You don't see branches struggling. They just abide. They're just attached. They don't struggle. They draw their strength from the vine. Be a student of the word, John fifteen seven. The word is like the sap in a tree going into the branch. The sap produces the strength and the life and the fruit. And depend on the Spirit, John 15, 10. Depend on the Spirit, John 15, 10. If you're here today and you're in this old world and you find yourself frustrated and empty and maybe religious, but you don't have a love relationship with Jesus Christ, then... I'm going to invite you when we stand to step out and come. Our staff will be at the end of the aisles, and they'll be masked up, and we'll practice social distancing. But everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. And maybe today you need to recommit your life to Christ. You can do it where you're seated and make where you're seated an altar, or you can do it by coming to one of these men and say, I just need to have somebody pray with me today. And we can do that or one of our counselors can do that. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your life to Christ. And so as we stand, I want to ask you to step forward and come and give your heart to Jesus Christ today. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to change you. Ask Him to make you new from the inside out. Ask Him to do what only He can do in your life. They're singing, you step out and you come.